Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Neil Adams, and you're listening to The Marvelist with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Hi, guys. So, we are joined right now at Big Apple Comic Con, like I said on the last interview, day one of one. And we are joined right now with the legendary artist, Neil Adams. Neil, greetings. Greetings, greetings. How you doing? Pretty good. Run into Storenko yet? We have, and there's oh so much going on at this con. But I have to go to the the table that has its own zip code, and I just love it. There's so much. I was looking well, at one of your considering prints. considering the uh, considering the table and considering the size of the con. Uh, it seems like a big uh, table, but the fact of the matter is that we generally take something that's about four times the size of this. This has turned into such a homey little con that it's like going back in time 40 or 50 years to uh, when they started these conventions. And they would hold them in little places like this. And, uh, I mean, there's rugs on the floor. Yeah. I mean, it feels like, uh, feels like somebody's home. You know, and everybody's having a great time. And you can see what comic cons have evolved into, but by by in, by the contrast between this and let's say the New York Con, which is uh, massive and gigantic and institutional, this is homey and cuddly and warm and cute. It's the heart of what comics are. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you can pick your place in time and say that movies are silent movies. They're not silent movies. Yeah. You can say they're musicals. No, they're not musicals. They're just whatever they are at the time. But at this time, this is a unique little circumstance where it's like... See, you have to remember that there's something in the order of 100 comic book, big comic book cons in America in a year. That means uh, that's cons that have only over 20,000 people. But there are 300 little cons in America in a year that have between 3,000 and 10,000 people. Those little cons are like what this is about, except yeah. this is in the middle of Manhattan, New York. So it's a, member, a remembrance of what cons used to be in New York. I mean, I've never, like, I look through, like, the 1970s, 1980s, you know, comics, and I'll read, like, the little ads, like, hey, this con is coming up over here at this location, this hotel. And I do wish I got to experience that, too, because... Well, you can if you travel out to Jersey and, uh, and, and to other places where you can see towns will put together a con, uh, a convention, and it will be local in that area, and other, you know, the towns around about will come and, and they'll have people come, but they, they haven't got a venue, so they'll <laughs> go into a local school or they'll go into a, a portion of the community and the whole convention is there. Uh, we periodically, every once in a while, just for fun, we will go to some of these smaller cons to see what, what they're, you know, they'll invite you and they'll have a special event and you're going to get an award and something will happen uh, where they'll have like uh, ice sculptures. There was one we went to that had the ice sculptures and so half the convention had to do with ice sculptures and there were horribly bad ice sculptures. I don't know why these people, they, they basically did models of things and froze ice over them. They didn't, they weren't sculpting at all. 
but it was fun. You know, it was like they, they had a good time, and it was and they combined that with the Comic Con. So you can actually go to these smaller conventions and find them. You don't necessarily have to go to the bigger conventions. You can get the gamut. It's just that in Manhattan, you don't normally find a convention that's this small. Yeah. And it makes it kind of cute. There's a convention. It's a smaller level convention. Every year it gets bigger and bigger, but there's one uh, in the Hudson Valley over in Poughkeepsie, New York. We're going to have one at the, the School of Art and Design. Uh, I, I wanted to go to that because... Well, it's going to happen in February. might have an opportunity. I'm friends, with your, there for it. I'm friends with your son, Josh, and it, that was the weekend. I was down in the city, but I wasn't able to make it last year, and oh, Spiegelman was there. Yeah. I really wanted to meet him. Like, I, was, I was kicking myself over that. But, I, and, uh, and I think that was very nice. Unfortunately, Mr. Spiegelman smokes and doesn't have the sense to put out a cigarette when he's talking to people. <laughs> that happens. Anyway. Uh, uh, I live with a smoker. I understand. It was, yeah, it's not, it's not a good thing. Secondhand smoke is almost as dangerous as smoking, so you have to be careful with that. Anyway, uh, it was good last year. I was there last year. Uh, I had a good time. I enjoyed the kids. We had a little seminar, and um, uh, and I think this year is going to be that much better. I mean, I don't think it's going to be super better, but because it's taking place in a school. But anybody who's in the New York area would be remiss not going there because you've got all your best art students going to that school, putting their stuff on display. Uh, we have uh, guests, uh, we have people who graduate, the graduates, and uh, people who are go- about to graduate, and the new new kids coming in. It's, it's very, very refreshing, really wonderful. That's all, and like, you might be seeing like the next big hotshot artist, you, you know? You never know, you never know. Keep your eyes open. And obviously the show, The Marvelous, we talk about a lot of things in the Marvel Universe. You're, of course, known for your iconic run at Marvel on both runs on... Uncanny X-Men, well, when it was known as X-Men, and Avengers, the Kree Scroll War. And what is I hear they're going to be making some movies that sort of relate to that Kree Scroll War. There's so much that they could do with this. And I remember when I talked to you at Big Apple Comic Con, I want to say 2018, we talked about, you know, what they were doing with the whole Spider-Man issues. They were doing this, they were doing this. And I'm hoping to see the X-Men in the very near future. And some people want to know which team are they going to utilize? Are they going to utilize the black and yellow? Are they going to utilize giant size? We don't know. If you were the one in charge of this, who would you pick? I started at the beginning. Yeah? And I, I worked toward the end. I mean, I, I think that's the way to go. I think you work with, you start with Jack Kirby, you go to Neil Adams, and then you move on. And, uh, and, I mean, there's so much money to be made in that franchise. And you want to pick uh, young actors that you can watch get a little bit older, at least for a period of like four or five movies. Uh, you don't want to keep on replacing actors quite so much. You want to make, uh, you know, pick a, pick a time, you know, a movie a year. And do a movie a year. And, you know, really take advantage of your franchise. I don't see why that's not done. I don't get it. Uh, if I were trying to, if I were just thinking economically, that would be a smart economic move to make. I, and that's what I would like to see. Yeah. The Avengers, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, I see the Kree Scroll War uh, happening, possibly happening, and I, that would be the right way to go. I think that's the smart way to go. What, is, what happens after that? I don't know. There's, you know, there's, a, there's a number of things I can pick from, but 
I really, I would focus on the pre-scroll war. I would just, because the pre-scroll war says so, so many plot opportunities, so many characters in disguise that suddenly reveal them. Out of five people, which one is the scroll? You know, there's so much. There's new characters, there's new situations, it just... And they could tap me for the real ending of the Free Scroll War, which they have never done. And what is the real ending? Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> That'd cost you a lot of money. My thing is, I think they're also going to, they are going to utilize that storyline and maybe mash it up a little bit with uh, Secret Invasion, the Brian Michael Bendis story. And you, because when you just mentioned who's a scroll, who's not, that might be how they bring back characters from the dead, for example, because. If I would, if I. There's a thing that Marvel should pay attention to. I don't think they're going to, and I don't, and I don't see why they don't. But my pre-scroll war has to do with a character named Rick Jones. Rick Jones is potentially such a pivotal character in the pre-scroll war. Could do so much. Which never got done, never got exhibited. I mean, you know, I stopped working on the Kree Scroll War just as we were about to subversively in, reintroduce Rick Jones and then see his real background. And it was never done for reasons that don't matter, but it is the real basis of the, of the, the solidity of the story that was going on and that they should be using. So, yeah, there's. Comics, comic books, comic book movies. A lot of things are going on. Right. Taking over the world. They really, honestly, when they announced Disney Plus, that I was. I don't think. I don't. The problem with, with most of you guys. Oh, I'm sorry. All of you guys. With all of you guys. What about you guys? No, you guys. Is that you can't see into the future? Yeah. Okay. Well, man, mankind, mankind, up to now, has been affected by. The cultural world around you. If you if you go to uh, Assyria or Mesopotamia or Egypt or wherever, you think, for example, that it's things happen spontaneously and, so, and things and the, the culture develops the way it develops. It doesn't develop the way it, the culture develops. You think it does, but it doesn't. It develops through the through the oddball things that happen within a culture. For example, somebody decides he's going to build pyramids. And suddenly, all we know about Egypt is pyramids. Somebody decides he wants to be able to read what people say. So he develops hieroglyphics. It's usually... It, it's, all, it's either a guy or a dozen guys or whatever. So suddenly, you have a culture that retains your history through words. Uh, people start wearing clothes that exemplify what they do because how, of how they deal with things. For example, um, they wear wigs because they can't deal with the bugs things that attack their skins. So you have a whole culture of people wearing wigs. Now they got to get their wigs from somewhere, so they got to get their wigs from certain animals. Then they have to dye their wigs, so they have to develop dyes. So everything in their culture is caused... He's, everything in a, in a culture is caused by certain things that happen that people have solutions for. 
so that whether it's buildings or it's uh, clothing or weapons or whatever is exemplified in the, in the culture that that culture becomes is created by an individual or a half a dozen individuals or a king that decides something's going to happen a certain way. So it's the culture that surrounds people that causes them to be what they're going to be. For example, a little simple of a modern example would be, we now have what's called handwriting. We write in what's called script. Ten years from now, that won't exist. Yeah, because everybody's working on computers. I had to relearn to type. I learned to type when I was younger. I stopped typing, and I was no longer typing for three decades. Now I have to learn to type again because I have the keyboard. I've noticed that. And if I don't learn the keyboard, I, that's learning to type. I, we, had, we had classes like that in junior high where certain girls went to learn typing. I didn't learn typing. I learned cooking or whatever it was that is, was in that school. So I learned those things while the girls were learning to type. Nowadays, two-year-olds can type. Three-year-olds can type. So we're going to lose script. Yeah. A future generation, 10 years from now, is going to look at script and they're going to go, what is that? Uh, hieroglyphics? Is that, you know, what is that? Script, handwritten script is going to disappear. We've had decades of it, many decades. It's going to be gone. Well, it's happening because of the computer. It's happening because of letters. Okay? That's the only thing we're going to know. So how are we going to sign our name? I don't know. I don't know. How are we going to sign our name? Matt, Matt pantomimed drawing a thing just now. That was amazing. Use a credit card on like an iPad, you know, with, with the little, uh, what they call those, the locks, right? And then like sign your name and sign with your finger. Yeah, but that's not, that's script. Yeah, I still do mine. But I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's, not, it's now kind of used, but it's not going to be kind of used 10 years from now. So how are you going to sign your name? It'll be facial recognition. Yes, I've noticed it'll be that. facial recognition, and so you won't sign your name. True. Well, on your, let, let's say you use a square, okay? You get a square, and you have certain codes that go in when you put the card in. And then you're asked to sign your name. You can write a script like this, and they will accept it because yeah. they don't care. The computer doesn't care about if you signed your name or not. You can put a scribble as long as there's a mark. So the computer is not reading your name, nor are they reading your script, nor are they reading your signature. The computer doesn't give a shit. Yeah. There, this is a pretend thing. The pretend thing is I need to see that instead of you can just make a line. They need the computer, when you put that card in, that's all that matters. Script is a, is a, is a, uh, a fiction that they perpetrate because they think that people psychologically need it. Yeah, my friend John Gorga, who runs Carmine Street Comics over on Carmine Street, aptly named, he told me, you know, you can, you can sign whatever, and he told me, there's been many inappropriate things drawn on those squares, so, well, it's more, anything. More yeah. people, women who are shopping, they just go like that. Yeah. They write no name. They just write a little capital letter and a thing like that, and it goes through fine. 
So, so accept the thing won't accept it unless somebody does something. So there's there'll be a moment in time where that'll just that doesn't matter. So what's happening? So you're having a, a cultural change that's caused by the fact that the script is going to go away. Yeah. Okay. And and all writing is going to be hand lettered. Right. Hand lettering, like comic book lettering. Will we use capitals and small letters? Uppercase and lowercase? Okay, we will definitely lose script. Yeah. That'll be gone, okay. There'll be no such thing. So, when I say we're taking over the world, okay, you can kind of look at that and say that's something that somebody says. No, it's not something somebody says. People in India read Archie Comics. Very popular, okay. Indians have 112 gods and they're writing comic books to the 112 gods. They'll share that with us. Japanese and Chinese will share it with us. There'll be cultural exchanges of gods, of characters, of an international communication on a creative level that has nothing to do with international politics but has to do with cultural exchanges of ideas and concepts across borders that will have nothing to do with whether Donald Trump is president or not. Okay, will have to do with the cultural exchange and understanding. Just like if you build a building in Cleveland, Ohio, it can look just like a building in New York City. Even though those architects may be in different cities, there's enough international intercommunication between them that they're learning the same thing. So buildings in Thailand and China and Africa are the same as buildings in Manhattan. So now we're developing a cultural unity around the world, building the same kind of buildings, building the same kind of houses, building the same kind of cars, building the same kind of toys, building the same kind of comic books, building the same kind of movies that will be culturally mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, okay? And we, being the greatest contributor, comic books, being the greatest contributor of movies, television shows, and computer games, are controlling a vast section of the community, inter, uh, the creative community of the world. DC and Marvel Comics, the two head companies that don't know what they're doing, have no idea what they're doing, and they're hiring people, the head, new head of DC Comics knows nothing about comic books, okay, is making executive decisions. That's this other comic book company. Yeah. Okay. The distinguished making competition. Making executive decisions. The Marvel Comics are making uh, got executive decisions made by Disney Corporation. Okay. And so they are affecting the creative world. The creative world, our creative world, back in the beginning, in the 40s, okay, used to be a bunch of Jewish kids on the Lower East Side. A bunch of Jewish kids on the Lower East Side. Why? Because they were near. They were right around the block, okay? They're walking around with their portfolios. Now we have people whose names you don't even read. You can't understand how to pronounce their names. It's Ritvik. 
people from Czechoslovakia, people from Australia, people from Africa, people from China, people from Japan, people from all over the world funneling all their creative effort into DC and Marvel and they don't know what they're doing. So, we have this creative community which is now not the Lower East Side but all the creative world all coming from different places, all feeding into the same creative community, then making movies and television shows and computer games. How anybody could even suspect that we're not controlling the world and changing the world is almost insane. Yeah. If you look at it from the long range of history, okay, we are changing the world. This hotel with this bunch of people, these people who run the hotel have no fucking idea what's going on here. This is changing the world. When I was at uh, New York Comic Con one year, I'm looking around and I'm seeing like all these different things, like these small independent creators. And like the thing about seeing all of these characters, like what could be the next multi-billion dollar thing? It could be sitting in Artist Alley and we don't know it yet. That's right. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. I'll tell you something else. A comic book artist and writer can turn out a comic book in a month that could turn into a $250 million movie and next month they could do another one. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. It's the, the output of it all. And pretty nifty in a weird kind of way, isn't it? It really is. And like I've you know I've had conversations with people who are currently at Marvel, like for example Matthew Rosenberg. During my interview with him, I mentioned I'm like, what is it like that you get to play with these multi-billion dollar toys essentially? And what does he say? He was like, I really don't see it that way, but I understand. Exactly. exactly. No, he doesn't understand. But just logically he doesn't understand. He has no con concept of this. And that none of the people who do it, they're like they're like uh, children playing with toys and they have no idea that what they're doing is affecting cult the culture of the world. When Brian Michael Bendis created Miles Morales, he did not think that character would have such a strong influence on people of all ages, people That's of all right. races, creeds. It's insane. So I think that episode is going to be wrapped up right now. Neil, it was an absolute pleasure and honor to speak with you yet again. Okay. Good. So how can people get a hold of you on the worldwide internet? NeilAdams.com Thank you for your time. So this is day one of New York Comic Con, and we're joined with one of my all-time favorite comic creators, a guy who partially saved my life. But oh, you know, I've killed a guy for you. We, I appreciate that, by the way. And like the way you handled the body, just amazing stuff. Well, the, the fucker was insulting Showa-era Godzilla, and I didn't want to hear that. See, I, I understand that. Hey, yeah, he deserved it. So I, uh, I shot a man in the crotch just to watch him dance around funny in Reno. That's a really awkward Johnny Cash Old people Cash don't song. get that. It's not an awkward Johnny Cash song. It's well for him, of course. I, well, no, the one with uh, the, the one where he's named uh, oh, Sue. boy named Sue. Yeah, that's an odd one. Yeah, I can see that. You know why he's cool? Columbo murderer. Anybody who was a Columbo murderer, even if they suck, I love. They, I love Columbo too. So why are we talking about Columbo? Because it's more interesting than comics. And almost that. anything is more interesting than comics. Well, on the topic of comics, uh, you have some stuff coming out over at Dark Horse. I love Columbo. <laughs> Mrs. Columbo? Not so much. By the way, we're joined with Evan Dorkin. Hi. Uh, milk and Cheese fame, Beast of Burden fame, Blackwood fame, Bill and Ted if fame. You, you use the word fame after any cartoonist who isn't Charles Schultz and, jeez, uh, that's about it. People don't know who Jack Kirby is. There's nobody famous in comics. You know, I'm going through... Um, the fourth world stuff for the first time after it finally clicked and 
Oh, you, you, you taking mushrooms? Is it's just like, it fi- I don't understand. Like, it finally Kirby, makes sense. Kirby is a language, and you have to you have to grapple with it because yeah. it's great. I did not read his DC stuff as a kid, and uh, I got I came to it much later. And the Jimmy Olsen stuff. Don Rickles. Oh, and Goody Rickles. Goody Rickles. When we sat, when my wife and I, Sarah Dyer, when we worked on the Superman cartoon series, the first thing that we were brought in on never got made. It was going to be a comedy episode, and it was going to be Goody Rickles and um, why am I forgetting the uh, Stan Lee? Oh, Funky Flashman. Funky Flashman, and we actually plotted it and everything. They were going to try to get Don Rickles to do Goody Rickles and, and do the voice, which didn't come to pass. But would have been. This, I, I know I should find that and put that up on my Patreon because I have the whole plot for that. Anthony says yes, but I don't trust his judgment because he freezes pop tarts, ladies and gentlemen. Now he's upset. Oh, go back to making fun of Dan Didio. He says. So anyway, not famous. Did a bunch of comics. First day of this godforsaken convention. Are you here for all four days or just? Am I allowed to curse? You well, fuck sure. no. <laughs> I'm here all This four is a days. Batan death march of, of plastic and, and newsprint. I love these things, but I couldn't do this for four days. Oh, you, it gets rough. You'd have to pay me. It, it definitely gets rough. But just I like I like these, but New York is 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 a unique show in that it's New York. And I'm from here and I can't stand it. It's just too too many elbows, too many backpacks. It's a it's a I feel like I'm at a Murphy's Law show, you know, and I'm picking up change all the fucking time. It's I've jokingly said I've gotten my ass hit more times than a cigarette. You know, it's, it's true. It's like rollerball, and justice is uninteresting. So, you know, there was a woman walking around. She well, rolling around. She had rollerblades on. And yeah. I'm just like, that sounds like the worst idea for a costume. The problem is, I don't know. I like cosplays. My daughter loves it. I hate people who cosplay as a uh, rude moron, asshole. Because they're all. That's the best. That's the costume most people pick. Uh, it's weird. You get Harley Quinns. You get Spider Man. Rude asshole. What about Deadpool? They, I think Deadpool's on the, you know, he's a bit low down. I Not so much Deadpool. I mean, Gwenpool, New- Hulkpool, you know, all that. In New York, though, I've seen a Deadpool conga line. And yeah, that's something that's, to do. And it's very obnoxious. Like, I, I like Deadpool, but seeing that, I'm just like, could you? I, I'm glad people enjoy it. It, yeah. gets, it, gets, it gets old. Yeah. It must get old, especially for, for Anthony and people who come do lots of conventions. Because this is the only show we've done this year, because we're so in demand. And uh, so, yeah, Deadpool. I'm just waiting to get a sword in my eye. <laughs> I saw somebody fall over somebody's wheelchair. I've seen people knock over baby carriages. I mean, it's insane. My favorite thing you've done in the comic, by the way, was it was I want to say during Eltonville Club, and you just see a panel, and then you see it in the corner. Oh my God! They trample Jim Steranko. It's something. Like oh that. yeah, they, 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 they can't. They, they trample Steranko, but he doesn't escape because he's supposedly a world-class escape artist. But I think he doesn't know how to spell bullshit correctly. His wig didn't make it out. That hair is impeccable, by the way. Let's not get on to Steranko. He'll never do because I'll show, do. By the way. I'll do three hours on Steranko. I had to eat dinner. I ate dinner with Steranko and John Byrne. Okay. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing that was missing was Dave Sim to get us to throw up all over the table. It was a bad dinner, too. We ended up going to uh, Krispy Kreme Donuts. Just go okay, down I was going to make a joke Sizzler. Like, that's even worse. Oh, this was a very, very bad. This was a Dragon Con. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was crap. Anyway, this con. 
Why don't you ask me a question? You haven't asked me one fucking question. God damn you. You and your podcast. So you sure I can't have that thing? It looks like a tricorder. I want that. Well, I think it is. No, it's a So you got that for free? Well, essentially, yeah. It's sponsored. What do you mean, essentially? You had to do an act? A sexual act? The Aristocrats. I don't know that one. I only know the uh, the Disney film with the cats. Oh, that's the Aristocrats. Yeah, that's the one I know. Anthony wants to leave. Go! Get out of here, Anthony. So... In regards to what are you doing now at Dark Horse? Talking to you, it's fucking horrible. <laughs> at Dark Horse, I'm working the re- I'm working the register. How's that working out? I'm skimming a few fives. Uh, what am I doing for Dark Horse right now? What? I'll do what I like. Our signing was late. How dare you, Anthony? I know Randy Stradley. I know Chris Warner's gun collection. Every time you say Rad- well. Randy Stradley, by the way, I want you to say Randy Savage. I don't know why. <gasps> Um, anyway, let's answer as many questions in two minutes as we can. I'm working on uh, the, 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 the Blackwood, the second arc with uh, Veronica and Andy Fish. Uh, three issues of that's written. I'm finishing up the fourth one. That's going to start, I think, early next year. They announced it a few days ago, so I think February. I think it's in the announcement, so I can say that. So that's February, so I'm very happy about that because I really enjoy working on that. It's a gorgeous book to look at, too. Right? Yeah, I really love And there's a lot more characters, a lot more design work that they're putting into it. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's, I think the second arc is going to be better than I think we're really funny our rhythm working together on this, because I've not really worked with a lot of people. I've, ne- I've only worked with a couple of people on really own stuff, so sometimes it doesn't work out so well, and, and you don't mesh. But this has been a, this has been a blast. Um, this podcast, you mean? Thank you so much. Edit that out because I only want the truth on this fucking thing. Uh, John, see what you can do. The uh, the other thing that I've got going right now is Sarah, uh, Sarah Dyer, and I wrote a four-issue piece of Burton Wise Dogs series, which I don't think is scheduled yet, uh, but has been discussed enough by enough people. Ben Dewey, Benjamin Dewey, and Nate Picos, uh, artist and letter on that. First issue's done. It's beautiful. Uh, Ben's working digitally, but he's retaining a lot of that watercolor type of thing. I'm hoping that after that we do another, I, I would like to do a four-issue series of one-shots. We're discussing that. There's something else going on that I can't talk about, but it's just so I can pretend that I have a career. And um, I think that's it for right now. You know, Dark Horse is my home. I've been working for Dark Horse since, I've been freelancing for them since 91, 1991. Yeah, you were doing stuff with on the mask, and I believe the I did a mask series. I, I wrote a Predator series. I drew a Predator series. I, I you know, it's the piano. Uh, a lot of anthologies. Um, yeah, I've been there back when they were anthologies. Um, so you know, I have a I have a pretty good relationship. They they haven't thrown me out yet. And uh, this is like you know, I always used to do double duty between SLG and Dark Horse. A lot of the strips I did for each company got repro- got into other, you know, there was a, there was a, a, a symbiosis back then. Uh, I left SLG a bunch of years ago. It was the right thing to do, um, uh, you know, just pragmatically. And it's really nice to see, I have six books in hardcover. This is like insane. I never had my stuff all collected like that. And next year we'll have eight, uh, eight, eight books plus Call of Cthulhu and Blackwood. Because uh, the mask just came back out again, so it's, I have a nice library. I have a good relationship uh, with Mike. Uh, every once in a while, he sends me an extra ten dollars so that they, you know, I don't have to sell blood. He doesn't get my jokes. That's okay. He never, he never gets when I call him the tall man and then do the fantastic oh, boy. He 
never gets that. Never gets that. I'm like, okay, don't you like monsters? I guess they never got that. They never got that license in the nineties, you know. But uh, you know, Godzilla versus Charles Bar. That's an asterisk. Okay, your podcast sucks. <laughs> Do you have any quick questions? Come on. Well, since we're a Marvel yes, podcast, no, why? No. Should... Oh, that's right. You're a Marvel podcast. What I want to know for us. Why should people read your Dark Horse material? Because I feel it's just that good. Yeah. I've done Marvel work. Writing is writing. Uh, I've done shitty Marvel work. The, the Madman, that terrible Mad Dog thing that I did as a favor. I don't even Oof. remember that. Oh, thank God. But I did a thing series I was pretty happy with. I did some Captain America short stuff. And, uh, I like Agent X. And I, got, I, like the, I love the Agent X stuff. Well, so I got to bring back Fight Man. Well, I, nobody was paying attention to the book because Gail Simone, when she was pulled, People just like walked off, you know, which which happens. But I was I was able to do whatever the hell I wanted, so I was able to bring every decade I bring Fight Man back at Marvel. It's, it's my, that's how when they fired me, they didn't fire me. But the Bill and Ted book people really like. It keeps it came back in print again two years ago from Boom. I, mean, I got along with when I worked for Marvel, Tom DeFalco and Mark uh, Grunewald were trying to get me to do what they called the big fist, the, the punching comics. And I liked that stuff, but at the time. I was really punky and obnoxious, as opposed to just obnoxious. And I just, I, I, I didn't want, Marvel was hard to work for because their sales department were stepping on books like Dark Horses and SLGs and Fantagraphics. Their sales department people were literally saying to retailers, don't buy these small press things, buy more Marvel, you don't need to invest any money in that. It's never gonna sell, blah, blah. And I, I, I couldn't work at a place that was paying me three days of the week and then stepping on my work the other four days. It was a really, so I, I left. I was, I was offered X-Men 2099 uh, with uh, a friend of mine, and I was, and then he left, um, John left, John Moore left, and I, was, and I just realized I can't, I didn't want to do it. I mean, I'll do some work, I do some work for Marvel, like every couple of years, somebody forgets that they, that they don't want me and they hire me, but I mean, I'm a Marvel kid, I grew up on that stuff. That influences my work at Dark Horse. You know, I'm doing team books, basically. You know? We're getting the uh, end of speech button. You don't have Oscars. to listen to him. He, 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 if Mike's not here, I, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. That's an unwritten rule. Because I like, bought all the extra copies of Boris the Bear. Is it like a diplomatic? Oh, wow, that's a deep cut. I am, I'm nothing but deep cuts. It's amazing I haven't blood to death. You're invited back on the show. We have to set something Your up. show needs to end. How dare you? Why is it only Marvel? I was wondering why you were talking to me, because I'm a Dark Horse guy. Stuff. Yeah, well, if I ever do anything for Marvel, you and I will talk. What if I ever do anything for DC, call 911, something's happening in my head. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Evan, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter at evandorkin at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram, same thing. Instagram is better. I put a lot of pictures and art up. Uh, people are cooler to each other, and there's a lot of artists helping each other out. Twitter is, of course, you know, the trash fire, um, and uh, maniacs mostly. Uh, I think I'm on Tumblr, but I'm not on Facebook, and I just started a uh, Patreon. Nice. That's how well things are going. I also have a podcast because I'm useless like you. <laughs> Seriously. What do white what? men do when they don't know what to do with their lives? Podcast. Let's talk about wrestling. That uh, German just... suplex. Rolling German suplex. I'm good. All right, this is day four of New York Comic Con, and we are at the St. Mark's Comics booth. In St. Mark's Comics, unfortunately, is no longer a comic book store in the New York City area. 
but it had a legend that for over 30 years was one of the most iconic places to go to, not just as a comic book fan, but as a comic book professional, and just people who are in love with the art form of comics. St. Mark's was that place, and right now we are joined with the owner, the proprietor of St. Mark's Comics, Mitch. Mitch, how are you today? I'm doing great, thanks. Now, when you first opened up St. Mark's Comics in the 1980s, I believe, correct? 1984. 1984. You were in a post-Star Wars world, like where geek culture was, it was strong, but it wasn't quite to what it was nowadays, but it was still, it was there, you know, like you were the underground for the misfits and whatnot. And I'm talking about the, oh, band, but, you know, just the misfits of counterculture and everything. What was it like when you first opened up the shop? You know, your memories of having the shop around there then? Just, just to be clear, the shop was opened in 83. I took it over in 84. Uh, it's been, it was ours ever since then. Um, St. Mark's is a legendary street, or at least was a legendary street. We hope someday it will be again for uh, the counterculture edge things happened on St. Mark's place first and then rolled out to the rest of the nation so uh, we were just fortunate to be in that place at that time where comics really began to come into a, a more uh, a more creative period the, the early and middle 80s were a, a huge golden age for comics and we were just we just happened to be there while it all happened. If someone wanted the first appearance of Black Suit Spider-Man, St. Mark's was their place to go right off the rack, you know? Just things like that, especially. That's like that's the first thing that pops in my mind when I hear, like, the mid-1980s, you know? And just so much stuff went on. What were some of, like, your favorite memories of, like, for example, Marvel Comics, or just comics in general, during your time working at the shop, owning the shop? Specifically, Marvel Comics memories. Uh, I, I remember. Uh, I remember we had a regular customer who was working on Daredevil. I, I don't remember if he was uh, assistant editing or, or what his particular role was. But he, he walked in and said, "Did you order next month's Daredevil?" And we said, "Sure." And he said, "No, you didn't order nearly enough. Order more." And we looked at him funny. And uh, he brought us a black and white advance of it. And it was Daredevil 227, their Miller Mazzucchelli first issue of Born Again. And it was the best work probably ever done on Daredevil, certainly that I'd ever seen. I don't want to be, be, be rude to the folks who were doing it earlier, but uh, it was an amazing amazing moment in comics and uh, I think we probably sold 10 or 15 times our normal Daredevil order on that first issue and that, I, that was a fun Marvel memory when I think of books like you know the Frank Miller style especially I don't know why but I just have like a, like a St. Mark's vibe to that too you know it's like that very gritty and that was what like St. Mark's was to me when I would go in like I would make my excursions to New York City and visit and see St. Mark's and my biggest takeaway for it was the atmosphere reminded me of like a 1970s record shop <laughs> and you know just going in there like combing through the back issues just like you know doing your thing and 
just that feel to it. It was very... Well, there are many, many similarities between comic shops and record shops. Oh, yeah. And They both love Rush. And uh, I don't know about that, yeah, but sometimes. all right. But um, uh, the vibes are often similar. And, and St. Mark's in particular, for a long time, St. Mark's was a huge nexus. There were five, six record stores on the block. Yeah. And so that, that's a, a very uh, common symbiosis we have found. Now, what do you feel is the biggest legacy of St. Mark's Comics? The staff. Yeah? The staff. That's the, that's the best part. That's what made St. Mark's Comics, what, you know, whatever positive memories you have of it, have to do with the amazing and talented and dedicated staff who contributed to how the place was built and how it was run and had every customer interaction and uh, and they are all graduated to amazing things now and so the you know the greatest thing that to come out of St. Mark's Comics is the community of that staff and the fact that we all still see and talk to each other in some cases 36 years later yeah and like one of the things was like I I've befriended a lot of people that work through there and you know you find like one connection and then you go from there you go through it's like trading cards you collect them all after a while but it's like you know I've befriended a lot of people there that work at St. Mark's one of them being Jason Jagori is you know like he's the linchpin of all of that like I know so many people through him and then just it goes from there and goes from there I, I talked to uh, TJ he was here yesterday or two days ago and I'm like we finally we finally met in person but you know I got to encounter these people and it's all like a very family vibe slash the people I don't know why it just reminds me of like a Kevin Smith movie like the way they talk the way they act it's just it reminds me of that I don't know why I like it though uh, I, uh, I I can't speak to the Kevin Smith movie part of it I can tell you that um, they're an amazing group they are all graduated on to important and meaningful things many of them in the industry yeah. and uh, you know, we are it's sort of like the secret sign you know if you worked at St. Mark's Comics if somebody didn't know you before they know two other people who did and that's like that's your calling card that you know it means that you're part of a very special group and uh, and, and it instantly tells somebody a whole lot about your attitude, your work ethic, your demeanor, and, and uh, it's, you know, I, I think it's helped many of the kids as they've gone on. When it was announced that St. Mark's was closing, I remember seeing on my Facebook, like, multiple, like, so-and-so has changed their profile picture, and it was up to a checkerboard, and I was just like, that is the sweetest thing. It's like, you know, the impact that the store had, and still has, because when St. Mark's came back, you, came, you guys came back on social media, and as a website, stmarkscomics.com, I believe? Yeah, stmarkscomics.com went up about two months ago. We we knew we were going to do it when we closed. Um, I mean, we had we had made some attempts before, but we really didn't put any uh, enough effort into it. Um, it's up and running now. It has our logo merchandise. Um, we will see where that goes. Yeah. I, when I was on social media, on Instagram, I believe, I'm scrolling through, and then I just see a checkerboard, and I think it was like... StMarksComics.com is the post I want to say it's something like that but I was like I audibly yelled holy shit and I was like what does this mean 
That's nice to hear. Thank you. But just uh, when I saw that, I was like, one, I can finally get a St. Mark's T-shirt. Two, right. I was like, oh my god, it still lives. Oh yeah. And that's, that's we're still we're still around. We preserved all the social media. We preserved the phone numbers. Everything still works. And you know, we'll 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 see where it takes us. It makes me so happy to see that. And all of this community, St. Mark's is a big part of that. And to be able to see that it's still, it's not alive in a physical sense of a main shop, but it's still alive in the spirit, and that's one of the most important things. It's a part of the community of comics, and that's magical. I love that. Thank you. So, Mitch, thank you for your time. And you bet. Can people get a hold of St. Mark's on social media and the interwebs one more time? Uh, StMarksComics.com has the merchandise and has links to all of our contact information, all the social media, and all the phone numbers. Thank you for your time. Thank you. What are we talking about again? Uh, we're going to talk about the Winter Oh, yeah. All right, it is day four of New York Comic Con, and we are joined with Kyle Higgins, who is currently writing for Marvel Winter Soldier, among other different titles for various companies in the comic book spectrum. He's a man responsible for a rebirth in the quality of the Power Rangers, especially. This amazing stuff from you. I'm, I'm good. I'm really surprised by your microphone setup here. I was a sound editor for years, so I'm not actually sure how much this is going to pick up in this environment. It, it will. It actually will. Like, the way that you're talking right now, yeah. this far away from it? Yeah, basically, I talk really loud for a lot of this stuff, so it picks up pretty strong. But and it's an X and Y stereo pattern. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, we, no one wants to listen to this nerd out about audio gear. Zoom is pretty fantastic. Uh, say that. I've got this recorder. It's the, is it the H6N? Yeah. Yeah. The H6. H6. Uh, I'm good, man. I'm exhausted. It's day four of the show. New York City. I, I have a leg injury, so I'm I'm walking around on one knee, basically. Uh, so I'm ready to be done. But let's talk some Winter Soldier. Now, how did you get onto the title? Who approached who? I approached Marvel. Um, I had had a crazy idea. Well, I'm kind of always... There are characters that I love, and I always think they're having kind of like the back of my mind of like, man, I'd like to do something on that character one day. And then so much of it comes down to timing and, and figuring out like, all right, what's the lay of the land? Is there a, a place for a, a, a book with Bucky right now? Right. And I felt like there hadn't been much with him, but he's a, a character that people, a lot of people know and love. And it has a lot of visibility because of the movies. So I thought, well, maybe maybe that would be a way to, you know, I could do something with that. And over the years, I almost wrote him a few times. Um, I know that uh, I almost did a one-shot with him way back in 2010. And then uh, when Ed Brubaker was leaving and I was writing Nightwing at DC, I know Ed was lobbying internally for me to take over for him. Uh, just because he thought it would be funny for me to write Nightwing and Winter Soldier at the same time. But, um, but yeah, so, like, and Tom Brevoort was my first editor in comics, and so when I had the idea for the book, I just brought it up to him and said, hey, do you think there's a, there'd be a place for something, you know, like this, or for a Bucky book? And he's like, sure. And Rod Reese was working with Tom at the time, and Rod and I had done Powell and Hadrian's Wall together, and so Rod brought me up as well. I was like, I'd really like to do something with Kyle, and, and Tom was open to it. And then it just turned into me trying to figure out what my take would be, 
in a way that wasn't rehashing old stories and just making it, you know, Tales from the Cold War comes back, or Bucky trying to redeem himself yet again, you know. It's kind of like that story had been done. Like, he spent time in the gulag for his crimes during the Cold War. He, um, he died to save the world. He became Captain America. Like, he's been redeemed. So then it became, for me, a look at, like, all right, well, how do we move him forward, and how do you, as a survivor, try to do meaningful things with, you know, your own narrative in your life and um, so that you're not defined by the awfulness kind of in your past and that's where the book came from. Now what was your original introduction to the character? I mean I've like anyone in comics you're aware that he had been around but then it was Ed's run that really like you know brought him to the forefront for me. And I'm actually I'm, is this your first work for Marvel? I feel like I've never, I've never seen you at Marvel before until now. And no, I started at Marvel. You did? Yeah, I did uh, just little stuff. I did Captain America one shot, then I did an Avengers, uh, The Origin of Vision one shot, then I did a, a couple 10-page stories, and then uh, I did the Supreme Power miniseries just as I was doing Gates of Gotham at DC, and then, you know, Batman and the Batman characters are my all-time favorites, so it was like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to pursue Batman. <laughs> And uh, so then I stayed at DC, and then I did. But then when Mike Martz went to Marvel for a little bit, um, I did a saber tooth uh, one shot for him in the X office. For me, you're always synonymous with DC. As like you know, as someone who follows the Batman titles, when I recently saw Comicsology had a sale on all of the uh, Winter Soldier books, I saw yours, and then I see I see by Kyle Higgins, and I'm like, wait, wait, what? We all move around as freelancers, you know. As long as you're not under contract, like. You know, and, and sometimes, like, it's cyclical. Like, you, you kind of, I wouldn't say wear out your welcome, but sometimes you do. Um, but you just kind of, you're looking for a change. You're looking for a new dynamic, new energy, new characters to play around with. And uh, and so you, you, there are only so many publishers to go do work for hire work for. Well, Kyle, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, just Twitter is probably the best, or Instagram. Uh, Kyle, Kyle D. Higgins. You're very welcome. So this is day four, the final day of New York Comic Con, and yes, I'm going to make that pun. We are, in fact, in the end game now. But we are joined. Oh. I know. Well, <laughs> believe me, you've heard. You should hear some of the puns we really go for. Believe me, we. Yeah. I think I thought that one deserved a good ooh though. Yeah. <laughs> but right now we are joined with Jim Starlin. He's back for a third time before the Marvelous and. Obviously, this is the end of the con. It's exhausting. It's tiring. How are you right now? I'm zombified, uh, staring off into the masses, wandering by in costumes and not in costumes, and uh, thinking uh, I've only got a few more hours and I can go home. Uh, I know you're an 845 guy as well, much like myself, and oh, to be back home in the sweet little area that we call New York. Yeah, I live up in the mountains, so... um, I'm not used to these many people. Uh, most of my uh, neighbors have four legs, so uh, when I get around too many two-legged ones, I tend to freak a little bit. Last time you were on, you said you were going to get like this gigantic Thanos, I believe, or something? Well, they had this uh, gigantic Thanos at the Trophy Con yes. that the guy who runs the show kept threatening he was going to ship it to me. Uh, it would do that. Yeah, he would do that, and uh, I, he hasn't, thank God, because I have no idea. It's like about 15 feet tall. And, uh, you know, it's not going to fit in any room I have. And, it's the uh, ultimate launch. 
but it might scare away the bears, so that'd be kind of nice. I mean, it's not the first time Thanos has been used as a scarecrow. Something involved with Thanos. That's true. I, uh, I, I've turned that into a cliche, haven't I? No, it's a good cliche. Yeah. I didn't notice it in the first movie. Uh, I saw the movie four times before I finally saw the scarecrow. Everybody kept saying, you see the scarecrow? And I go, uh, yeah, sure. And I didn't. It's in the trailer, though. I've never seen that. I'm like, it was in the trailer in the second movie, but in the first one, it's in the final scene with him. That I it's only about this big, this big, that's really good on the thing. It's, so about, an inch, it's, a, it's about an inch tall in the far right-hand corner of the scene, the establishing scene when he's sitting on the porch of the earth. Right. And I felt like a real fool for not having seen it, but then I was talking to McFeely, one of the screenwriters. It took him five views before I found it. So uh, it all works out. Now, in regards to Thanos and everything, just with the explosion of the character over the past two, three years, especially with the movies, you've seen a lot of cosplays probably in the, this weekend alone. What are some of like, the most impressive Thanos cosplays you've seen? Like the level of detail they went through. There was a guy here the other day who uh, he looked like the one from the second movie. Uh, I mean, he was that good. He's probably still around here somewhere, but uh, he was on stilts, so he's about eight feet tall. And uh, he was wandering around with the Gamora and the Star-Lord. I wouldn't let the Star-Lord in the photo with me. Uh, but I got the Gamora and that is on my uh, Instagram and Facebook page. Yeah. Right now we're being shown a photo of that. That is impressive. And I, I like your shirt, by the way. Yes, it was Santa. That's the ultimate election. There's about 20 of these different shirts out there right now. I've seen them. Yeah, I mean, I got this on Amazon, and I had to make a selection because I said, I only want one of these things. I remember uh, we were both at uh, East Coast Comic Con, and there was a person, they had these little stickers, the word bubble, and said, I still vote for Thanos over name redactor. One of my favorite moments was uh, on The Daily Show, uh, where Trevor Noah had all the list of the 23 Democratic candidates. They were uh, pictures were on the wall behind him. And if you looked real close, you saw Thanos as the last one. That's amazing. So it's been kind of strange. Uh, he's turned into this cultural phenomenon that neither he or I saw that coming. And when when the movie came out, especially with the impact of the character, we talked about it with you on the last time you were on. Who's a Simpsons couch guy? Like, you can't get bigger in pop culture than that. Like, no. Your, your character is immortalized alongside the foot from Monty Python, the Flintstones showing up on the couch. There's so many different things, and it's a part of that. Yeah, now I can't skip out on my family reunions anymore because they say the kids are waiting for you. Uncle Fans. Yeah, yeah, so it's a little bit on the strange side, but we're getting used to it. But it's, it's again one of those, like, that character is somebody like 10, 15 years ago, Thanos, okay, cool. But like John Q. Public didn't know them. No, in fact, when we went to see, I went to see the first uh, Avengers movie, right. there was a comic book fan and a cartoon fan behind me. And when he showed up on the screen, the comic book fan goes, Thanos! And the cartoon fan went, who's Thanos? And he's here. Oh, do I have a story for you. Yeah, and for the next seven years, it's been building up since then. And then you have another character that's going to be making his big debut as a part of Phase 4, Shang-Chi. There's Shang-Chi uh, coming. Uh, we still got Drax and Gamora. The following year probably will be there. And uh, got some other things in the works that may be popping up here, too. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. And to see the success, especially for yourself. And what I'm enjoying is when I'm reading a lot of your stuff, by the way, it holds up so damn well. Like, I cannot get enough of everything building up to the Infinity Gauntlet saga, like the Silver Surfer one that you did. Of 
course, you've heard it a million times, but it's just, it's so, it flows very well. If you do anything for 40 years, you better get better at it. <laughs> but Jim, it was an absolute pleasure being able to speak with you again today. Safe travels back home. And you, you take care of yourself, and we'll see you next time around. Sounds good.